are listening to GNU World Order episode 336 for day 19 of 2020. Hey everybody, this is Klaatu, your friendly host, and today's episode is all about listener feedback. I've got lots of listener feedback that's kind of been piling up a little bit. One came in before the holidays and I'd already recorded a bunch of episodes in advance, so I didn't get around to it. And some others, uh, I said I would respond, or, or I would cover it on the show, and then I, I put it off. So it's it's a little bit of a backlog, so we're going to get right in. We're just going to start right away with Mark. Mark emailed me ages ago now, almost a month ago. So um, usually it doesn't take me quite that long to get back to people on the show, and I do apologize, Mark. Um, but he wanted to send his, in his um, Linux origin story, because uh, frankly... Everyone, I, I think everyone loves hearing about that. I love hearing origin stories for, well, a lot of things, I think. I think a lot of people actually like to hear origin stories because, I mean, think about it. You you, you go to a school, a university, and, you think, and you, one of the easiest questions to ask is, what made you choose this school? You know, that's just, that's an easy, an easy thing. Um, what brings you here? That sort of question. It's a very sort of common thing. So... I think hearing about how people got started with a thing that you have in common, it's fun. And so I appreciate Mark sending in his origin story, and here's his origin story, somewhat abbreviated for time. I wanted to talk a little bit about my origin story in computers and Linux. It began about the mid-80s with an Apple II, and remember briefly programming on that, and I was in junior high. And I didn't have another experience with computers until 1992. Someone introduced me to Netscape, which was how I got to see what the internet was like. Fast forward to around 2000, I was in school for a couple years, and after that I got my first computer, and it was running Windows Millennium. Now that's commonly, this is Klaatu again, that's commonly known as Windows Me, and it is sort of one of those really sort of very forgotten editions of Windows. I remember at the time hearing a lot about it and how it was horrible and no one wanted to run it, and I guess... Was that when XP came out, or did XP come out after ME? I don't remember. But either way, people didn't really care for Windows Me. I, I don't know why not. I don't know. I, I honestly don't understand how people judge one Windows for, from another. I, I don't. I, I don't know what a good Windows is like versus a bad Windows because I, I'm not familiar with either of them. But I do remember hearing about Millennium, and people did not tend to like it. He says it was kind of slow and I didn't qu- it, it didn't quite suit my needs so I built a computer with an Athlon probably a 2 gigahertz processor and ran XP on it. A couple of years later somebody introduced me to Mandrake Linux. I was kind of curious so I put it on my computer. Uh he gave me a bunch of paperwork for a manual and he worked his way through or uh, Mark says I worked my way through learning KDE and Mandrake and came across Ubuntu probably around 702. I ran that a couple of year, for a couple of years. The point, um, th- then there was a point where he started to really like it a lot. Not Ubuntu necessarily, but Linux in general. Um, and what sold him on that was when he was able to import video, which he couldn't do on a Windows machine, which he was he was dual booting at the time, and that kind of got him hooked. After that, I tried Fedora uh, back when it was originally Fedora Core three or four. Hard to remember that far back, but I delved into that for a little bit and then distro hopped for a little bit. There was a place I used to get disks because it took so long to download the things that it was easier to just buy it online. A year or so after that, I discovered Arch Linux, 
and I was using that for maybe six years. Then a couple of years ago, I was noticing that Klaatu, that's that's me, the narrator, uh, talked a lot about Slackware. I had a lot of time on my hands because I was out of work at the time. Ended up putting Slackware on my laptop. It was a bit of an older laptop, but it installed easily, and um, and he had some experience with it. Uh, and then sometime this year, that's 2019 at the time of his email, Claudio M, that's um, Claudio. Uh, you may know, dear listener, Claudio M from Linux Basement was kind of the, the thing that he was participating in uh, sort of verbally for a long time. Others might know him from Hacker Public Radio. Uh, he's a great guy, really, really smart, and um, musician and a computer guy. Um, so sometimes, this is Mark again, sometimes this year Claudio M. introduced me to FreeBSD. I'd seen him talking on Mastodon about it, and I conversed back and forth with him. It sounded like something interesting, so put on a flash drive and installed it on an old tower. Uh, and in between all of that, I've exper- I have experimented with different distros on Raspberry Pis. I've tried Debian and was running Arch on a server for a little bit, and then I was trying BSD. And that seemed pretty nice, so I'm keeping that on the Pi for the time being. That's his little origin story. I think it's really interesting. Um, I will make a couple of comments about some things. Try not to go over too much that I've already sort of said before. I, I first of all think it's really interesting that Mandrake was um, was his intro. I really honestly don't quite understand Mandrake's um, fall from grace. I, I honestly don't, and I kind of regret it. I, I'm kind of sad about it to this day. Not that I was ever a paying member of Mandrake, because at the time, uh, well, at that time, at 2002, I was not able to pay for Linux. That was one of the big appeals at the time. Um, I couldn't pay for anything, so I could barely pay rent. So the the free, $0 free aspect of Linux was truly an, a, an appealing thing to me back when I was getting into Linux. Uh, now, 2002 predates me anyway, so that, that wouldn't have been it. But but I did get in in time for Mandriva to be still, you know, they were releasing things and they had the, the Mandriva um, the, the, the thing that you could join, a, a club I think it was just a club I think is what it was called and and that seemed really appealing to me and I, I liked the idea and I thought, well that's a great thing to fall back on and as you do, you just kind of think it'll always be around and, and now that now that I'm I'm gainfully employed and all that other nonsense. Uh, it's it's gone. It's it's not around anymore. And in fact, the, the the model of paid support for anything computing, I feel, is kind of gone. And I think that's a little bit of a pity. I think that the the separation of of support and the operating system, I think, is not a great thing. Across the board, and I don't mean just within Linux, I mean across the board. The fact that you can't, that there's no sort of accountability for anything on a computer these days, I just, I don't feel comfortable with that. If there's an exchange of money, like if there was not going to be, if there's no exchange of money, then okay, well, you get what you get, and that's kind of the the implicit, that's the thing. But, and, and I guess that's how most of the internet works, really. Uh, and if you get angry, you just go on, and I do say this significantly, you go on Twitter and you yell at the company and you hope to sort of shame them into responding to you by making noise publicly. And it's really, I think, encouraging this kind of, this sort of, this culture of, of, of demanding some kind of justice for yourself. It's, it's not really, 
you know, there's no guarantee that the the exception being made for you publicly to silence you on Twitter is going to extend to anyone else. It's purely for you. It's sort of an advertising campaign for the company that you're yelling at. So the fact that there's just no culture around, okay, well, if you want guaranteed something, then give us money and then and then the and then we'll we'll be accountable to what we just sold you that just doesn't exist and that's that's one thing for open source zero dollar software but if there's a contract for closed source software i definitely think that there should be some kind of guarantee for payment um and i always did kind of like that there was sort of a fallback on in linux when people would say oh there's no support for linux well, there is support for Linux. Here are the contracts. Now, it was always funny when I would point them to either Mandriva or Ubuntu at the time or Red Hat. People would think – would still – you know, it's it's anytime someone complains about Linux not having something and then you turn around and you say, actually, it's right here. And then they never – you know, it's it's like you call the bluff and then, and then the conversation's sort of over because it's like, well, they also don't have Photoshop. You know, oh, well – Naturally, that's the one I can't get around, right? I mean, that's that's the easy one. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's always sort of something out of reach, and and that's that's fine. But but why are why why engage in conversation when 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 you know that anything you know that that you might as well just shut the conversation down and just say, look, I'm not going to use Linux. Don't tell don't don't say you're not going to use Linux because of some fake reason. Just say you're not going to use Linux because you don't want to. It's fine. Anyway, way off track there. So that was Mandriva. I miss it a little bit. Uh, Mandrake, whatever. And then, yeah, his foray into FreeBSD. FreeBSD, I don't mess with FreeBSD anymore. As you may remember, I did try FreeBSD on a Pi, and uh, it didn't journal its file system by default, and so I swore it off. I very, very willfully decided I would never try it again. That's probably not in any way true. Um, I did, but I guess it isn't true, because I tried... Well, I guess it is true. I haven't tried FreeBSD lately, um, but I did try TrueOS. Uh, tri- no, it was called uh, tr- Trident or Trinity. No, Trident. Uh, Project Trident. And um, it's interesting. Uh, it's not quite PC, uh, BS- PC BSD, though, is it? That's kind of what it, it supplanted. And I have to admit, I kind of miss PC BSD a little bit. But uh, NetBSD is, is doing quite well for me on a Pi. Uh, that said, I need to set that back up now that I have moved again. Anyway, BSDs are, are fun to play with, and if you uh, enjoy Slackware, which you may if you're listening to this this show, you may not, but I mean, if you do, then the BSDs are, are kind of are kind of I would say within within a similar space. So there's that. There's there's Mark's email responded to as promised. Just really really late. I do apologize about that. Okay, so um, I got an, a message from Carl. Carl, you may know, dear listener, probably not as well as me for this this thing that I'm about to mention, but he sent me coffee, and man, have I been enjoying it. And I did talk about it at one point, so you may remember that name. Anyway, as a, as a little aside to a to a relatively unrelated email. He mentions a link, which I will have to in- include in the show notes, and the link is to um, undeadly.org, which is uh, OpenBSD stuff, and this particular blog post that he links to is about the MDoc, or rather the Mandoc tool, which converts uh, the markup language MDoc to other other languages, so or, or to other formats, rather. 
And so this is really tangentially about that. It's, it's that he was improving this tool to include Markdown as a target, and in so doing, he discovered how much he hates Markdown. And, and this is a, this is a subject probably closer to my heart than it really ought to be. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but, uh, it just comes up a lot in the stuff that I do. And so it's kind of an interesting, it's a really fascinating sort of problem, I guess. And that is the fact that, that Markdown's not very good. Uh, he, this, this author, uh, P-I-T-R-H is his username. And he, he has a lot of really great points. And I, I'm going to try to go through them real quickly without too much commentary. So first of all, lack of expressiveness. He says, Markdown's weak and powerless even by its own standard, which is make formatting easy for anything to be expressed in plain text. Uh, for example, it doesn't provide any syntax for definition lists or, um, yeah, definition lists. So that would be the DL in HTML or the .BL in MDoc or .TP in MAN. I, I don't think that's as big of a deal as he probably says. I think where a definition list is is required, you can usually fake with like maybe bold or like a, a fake heading and then some some bullet points under the, the, the heading or something like that. So for me, it's not a big deal, but it's a good point. Context sensitivity. The syntax and semantics are extremely context sensitive. Almost every token can be take completely taken has a completely different meaning depending on where it appears, and that's that's very true. Um, I don't know that that's a weakness though, but it it, it is. I mean, I, I I gather from what he is saying by as someone who has required to parse Markdown that that it is a problem because I can imagine. I mean, you can't just say okay, well, search for an asterisk because what what does the asterisk do well if it's left if it's all the way to the left then it does one thing if it's indented a little bit then it's something else if it's indented more then it's something else if it's not indented at all and it sort of surrounds a word then it's you know so it it gets messy and and that's a great point that he makes uh, right afterwards ambiguity syntax for um emphasis and underscoring and bolding and so on doesn't uh it it doesn't really quite work and and this is true too i i've i've seen this in in action and uh if, for instance if you if you have a a long variable name long underscore var underscore name some parsers are going to confuse that for long underlined var name they shouldn't because there's no space between long underscore var underscore name but it could happen if you have a, a bold word and then an italic word and then a bold word then a lot of times the you know you have so many asterisks there that they get confused as to where one starts and one and one where where one ends so that can get tricky and again this is a lot of a lot of these a lot of this weakness kind of appears in the parser rather than just sort of saying well that's a little bit unclear and and many of these are edge cases but you know with edge cases they they don't they're not an edge case to you in when you are trying to get the thing to cooperate. So uh, there's a mix-up of semantic and presentational markup. You can't uh, switch off filling, which is uh, presentational manipulation without getting code tags, which is semantic markup. You can't get indentation, which is presentational, without either a code or a block quote, which are both semantic. There are certainly 
several more examples of that that you could use uh, or that you can think of. Trust me, there, there are lots of those. And I don't know really the best way around that for markup, honestly. Like you can, I, I you can see the intent, and and it's sort of an admirable intent. It's just that if you're if you're coming to this thing a little bit differently than than the person who designed it, then suddenly that that becomes useless. For instance, the the uh, the definition. I, I haven't looked lately whether this is even in the original Markdown text or uh, spec, or whether it's actually GitHub or you know some other flavor of Markdown. But the double backticks around a, a word or a group of words to make it monotype and sort of inline code snippet, that, that is, I mean, really that's presentational, sort of, because you're doing the backticks to say, okay, well, I want you to adjust the font to be, um, mono, monotype when you see the, when a word is, when a string is surrounded by two backticks or, or a single backtick in some, in some spec. So that's pure presentation. Now, I guess in a weird way, Markdown almost combines presentation and semantics in some cases, as long as you know, as as long as you know what those semantics are, what they map to. But it's still, I mean, it is presentation primarily because you're only putting the backticks around it because you know that when you convert it to HTML or, or a PDF or whatever, then you want it to be in monotype to look like a code element. So, I mean, this is the problem that he's talking about. Uh, he says, lack of independence. Markdown is not a self-contained language. It allows ar embedding arbitrary HTML code. Um, to this, I would say, um, allows more like requires. Because as I've said before, nobody can do Markdown without resorting to HTML at some point. And I say that with a little bit of hyperbole, but not much. Syntax inspired by white space. A line break with a paragraph without a paragraph break requires white space at the end of the preceding line, but the number of trailing blanks is semantically uh, significant. There must be at least two. So the two line endings foo uh, with a with a with a, a new line and foo with two new lines have different meanings. And that's yeah, I mean that's obviously Markdown was in or I, I say obviously, but I'm assuming Markdown was heavily influenced by Python. I don't actually know that, but whatever. Lack of standardization. Yep, it's uh, that's huge. I've talked about that before. There's common mark for in, in an effort to try to to actually bring a, a reasonable spec written by people who, who who kind of understand the the requirements for a parser uh, and also have kind of a, a a larger design in mind. But largely, it's 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 unstandard. It's not standard. There's no standardization. Lack of extensibility. It wasn't designed with extensibility in mind, and it shows. I feel that's a weird one because actually, there, there's a a bunch of extensibility. I mean, or unless he's saying that because I mean, he even he even cites it in his blog post. He says uh, there's Python Markdown, there's PHP Markdown. I've never heard of either of those, but there's GitHub Markdown, and so on. So um, he says there's no documentation for the GitHub Markdown. I I I, I feel like. I mean, well, I had a I had a hard copy of a GitHub Markdown documentation for the longest time on my desk, so I know that someone wrote a document for it. Um, point being, though, there there's I feel like if that's not extensibility, then I, I'm not exactly sure what would be. So I, I I think he's just saying that because there's no single standard, it's not like people are expanding on Markdown. They're just sort of rolling their own markdown. 
But here's where it gets tricky, and, and I'm, I'm leaving the, the blog post now, so this is all just Klaatu pontificating. Uh, here's where it gets tricky. The, the idea of Markdown is that there is structure to text, and honestly, that alone, I feel, is good enough. And it, it sort of pains me to say that, because good enough never really sounds all that great. But in a way, that is. That's good enough for me. Because as someone who finds themselves parsing text, just a bizarrely... It's, it's something that I do a lot more than, than I think I should be doing. I don't know how I find text, so much text to, to parse, but I, I just eventually do in, in just in my hobbies and in projects that I'm working on, there's always some big dump of text that I need to parse. And and there are, very frequently, they are poorly formatted. Now, it's a beautiful thing if I can get the text in HTML, because with beautiful soup from Python, I can usually grab that HTML and kind of manipulate it in the way that I want it to be manipulated. And I've done that in in in... For, for lots of projects, I've, I've done that with very large chunks of text where I've been able to, to just rearrange everything because everything's at least been tagged somewhat predictably, usually sometimes. And unfortunately, that's the reality of, of HTML is that a lot of people misuse HTML. The reality of Markdown, in my experience, is that it's used frequently and oftentimes correctly. Because it is a little bit of it. It's it's not very forgiving, honestly. I mean, it's more forgiving than DocBook, certainly. Uh, it may be as forgiving as HTML, but but people see the results are wrong relatively quickly whenever they're publishing it or or rendering it, and and then they go back and correct the thing. So I've I don't know. I've had good experience with Markdown because people tend to whether. Whether you know, sort of like out of respect for the for the spec, which I don't believe it generally is, or just the desire to make it look like what they want it to look like when they render it, they conform to the spec, and that's a heck of a lot better than unformatted text. It really, really is. I've had horrible, horrible experiences with just these big dumps of text, and every single one is different. Every file's different because the author. One author decided to do really cool chapter headings with underlines, and the other one decided to do hashes, and the other one decided to not mark them at all, or someone else decided to do them numbered, and so on. So just providing some semblance of predictability, if that's the only goal of Markdown, which in a way I, I kind of feel like it is, then I'll take it. Would I prefer it to be better defined for more... For, for for more use cases, yes, I would. I think that would be brilliant. I would love that. Uh, the more markdown could be sort of a, a flexible language for for you know authors and for for coders alike. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I meant authors like artistic authors, like people who are writing fiction, for instance, and people writing about code, and people writing manuals for for processes of some sort. That doesn't have to be technical. You know, I mean. Point being, it was clearly designed by, like, this one person, and I don't know what this one person's sort of day job was or what he had in mind, but as far as I can tell, 
it was sort of like, well, here's a better way to write 90% of HTML without having to resort to tags. And the extra 10% will just, we'll do with tags because why not? It's just weird. And not everyone necessarily is targeting the web. So for Markdown to, to have such a close relationship to HTML does get a bit awkward. Now, the, the author acknowledges that there are alternatives. He declines to comment about them because he says he doesn't have all that much experience with them, which is nice. A lot of people wouldn't wouldn't take that opportunity to not comment on stuff that they don't know about, uh, and he does. And it's funny because two of the ones that he mentions I've got quite a lot of experience with. Well, no, one of them I have quite a lot of experience with. The other one I have a fair amount of experience with, and those are RST, or Restructured Text, and ASCII Doc. Uh, Restructured Text I worked with for about three years straight. Uh, I I worked almost exclusively in Restructured Text. And I have to admit, generally speaking, I preferred it to Markdown, except when it didn't do what I wanted it to do. Now, not that Markdown would have, but it just, I found it, I guess, as limiting as Markdown when you wanted to sort of get more complex, I guess, than what it wanted you to do. Same goes for ASCII doc. I mean, it's ASCII doc is kind of interesting. I didn't know this until I started working with it in, in real life that, or, or rather at work. Work isn't real life, but it's also not podcasting. So whatever that is, work life. I started working with ASCII doc a little bit, uh, a couple of, uh, maybe a year ago, a couple of months ago. And, um, and and it it's interesting because it 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 actually outputs to docbook so in a way it's like markdown is it is to docbook as markdown is to html and i will say that compared you know if you compare docbook to html uh, by the way undeadly.org this this blog post here um specifically says that docbook is quote an abomination. So that's kind of humorous because it's one of my favorite languages for writing content in because it is so well defined and it is it is flexible enough for me and it is um, really well defined. Did I mention that? It's, it it does exactly what you know. It's very predictable. It's very strict, which is refreshing because that means you know as long as you learn it, then then things you know how to produce things in a very specific way. And ASCII doc outputs to docbook. And so its back-end toolchain ends up being the docbook toolchain. But I think the problem with both restructured text and ASCII doc is that, yes, they are better defined than Markdown, but the better defined of the language, the more difficult it is to learn confidently. For instance, I couldn't sit down right now and write a document in either ASCII doc or restructured text off the top of my head. Whereas I feel like even if I wasn't working with Markdown very commonly now, I would still be able to write Markdown many, many years later because it is, it's just so natural feeling. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm saying other than I feel his pain with Markdown, but I also respect Markdown for the structure, the easy and intuitive structure that it does provide. And it's just a real shame that it's not easier to parse, I guess. Okay, it's time for a coffee break. Let's do it. Thank you. 
coffee. Let's continue with listener feedback. I got um, one. I think I feel like I'm missing a feedback. So if I'm if I've not responded to something that I said I was going to respond to uh, you personally, do let me know because I I'm just I really do feel like there's one gone missing. Uh, I did get a message from someone the other week about this thing called uh, the five geek social fallacies. And this was a blog post, I guess, from 2003, December of 2003. So it's been a while. And that's actually kind of why I want to talk about it. Because, I mean, you hear you hear the title, Five Geek Social Fallacies. And, and I mean, I'd never read this before. I, I, I'm coming to it after someone told me about it. So I have no idea sort of the 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 background of this post. I don't know how, maybe it was a big deal back in its day. I I really, I have no clue, but it's really, really fascinating to look back at, I mean, obviously the term geek and nerd and, and uh, things like that. I'm I'm thinking of, there's another one that I'm thinking of, but I can't, I'm not, it's not coming to mind. Um, I mean, obviously that sort of thing already, we all kind of know that that has changed. And some of us know, I think, that, that it's changed relatively recently. Like, it's, it's been a, it's, it's, it's very, very fresh that that term has changed. Like, we're, we're people who remember when those terms were just, um, things that you would, you would run from. Like, they would cause you real pain. And so it's just so fascinating for everyone, I think, that, that, that it's now a a flowery term that you can just sort of throw around and people will welcome it. People will even announce themselves as geeks and so on. So, I mean, it's a big deal. It's fairly recent. And I think this blog post kind of demonstrates that in a weird tangential way. So the, the first geek social fallacy here is ostracizers are evil. So now this is really, really tricky. And, and I can't tell you, I encourage you to go read this blog post for yourself because it really is fascinating and but it is so tricky it is it's it hasn't you know it's only 2003 so it's only been 17 years which isn't that long and yet it is almost the it, it's like reading shakespeare in its complexity at least for me because the the terminology and your preconceptions of personality types here are not what you think they are so, and even your, so you might think, well, geek today is a cool hip person, right? Okay, great. Okay, but then, then you, so then you go back to 2003, you say, okay, geek then, well, they're probably talking about this other thing. But no, actually, okay, so what they're talking about is a normal person who is a geek. And what they're saying is that ostracizers are evil. So as a normal sort of geek, just like imagine yourself, assuming you're a normal, nice human being, um, and I'm sure you are, dear listener, um, as a geek, and they're saying that you would be afraid to exclude anyone from your, let's just call it your party, um, from, you know, from, from a gathering or whatever, from a party, um, because you don't want to be the one to exclude someone, because you're a geek. And back in school, you were excluded from lots of things, because you played Nintendo too much, or 
or you knew how to program a computer or whatever, you know, what, whatever the, the problem was with, with you back in school. Um, so that's the, that's the place this blog post is coming from. And what they're criticizing here is that in, in geek groups, there were too many people who would not stand up and say, okay, dude, what you're doing right now is not cool, so cut it out. And, and the example that they're providing is, for instance, someone's coming, someone's coming to an RPG or a comic book, uh, uh, convention or a gathering, uh, trying to get into the, these hobbies, but there's a bad actor around. Someone who's trying to be a gatekeeper saying, oh, you can't, you can't do this because you don't know which issue of this magazine, of this comic, uh, this supervillain first appeared in or whatever, you know, like, you know how people do that. And, and so, so strangely, so yeah, so that's the person they're saying, no, that's the person you should ostracize, um, which, you know, I think that's, we could talk about that, right? We could, ostracizing is a term that is pretty strong, actually. So I think probably in, in modern maybe sensitivity, you might say, well, don't ostracize them possibly at first, maybe, maybe take them aside and talk to them and sort of like get them to be a little bit more inviting and inclusive and so on. So, you know, I mean, different time then, different, different standards, not a big deal. But do you see how I'm talking about something that's only 17 years ago? I mean, it's just weird to me that that's, that it's that big of a deal. And maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe, maybe people did that, like in the 90s. Maybe people were talking about, wow, back in the early 80s, it was so weird this was happening. So who knows? I don't know. But I just think it's really fascinating that there's so much complexity wrapped up in this. And I think today this whole thing would be a completely different. I, I think today, I don't even know that I feel today people would be saying that all geeks are like that one bad actor of 2003. I think I think like at least the critique I hear is that all all the the people don't want new people in the club and so they're being they are ostrich you know so the idea of saying oh geeks are are hypersensitive and don't want to ostracize bad actors I feel like that alone is a completely sort of disjointed history from what we have now where where at least again just the critique and I'm not saying that this is accurate or not I'm simply saying it is a critique that I hear uh, that is that, that that geeks are by almost by nature ostracizers which really it's quite quite um it's quite a a shift in perception I think so the second second fallacy is friends accept me as I am and it says after being victimized by social exclusion Again, it's sort of it's it's assuming that these geeks that they're talking about were the people in school who got made fun of, which again in today's world I don't think that that's as much of a thing. You know, I know that's not as much of a thing. I mean, if if you took a kid from a, a young person from now and put them, you know, back in probably the world of I don't know the maybe the late '90s or something or the '90s or '80s and had them talk as much about video games as people do now um they would they would be promptly bullied it would not be there wouldn't be a question about it that was just that was lame or you know whatever um so so after being victimized by social exclusion many geeks experience their 
quote-unquote tribe as a non-judgmental haven where they can take refuge from the cruel world outside seems reasonable. It's important for people to have space where they feel safe and accepted. Ideally, everyone's social group would be a safe haven. When people who rely too heavily upon that refuge feel insecure in that haven, however, a commendable ideal mutates into its pathological form. They believe, so in the pathological form, they're saying these people believe that since a friend accepts them as they are, anyone who criticizes them is not their friend. Thus, they can't take criticism from friends. Criticism is experienced as a treacherous portrayal of friendship, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of an interesting one. I feel like it is just funny because nowadays I feel like the concept of a quote-unquote safe space is somehow unpopular. I don't know why. I feel like everyone should have a safe space. Like, there, every place should be a safe place, right? There, there should not be a non-safe place out there. So it's kind of funny now, again, at least in my world, there's so much sort of resistance to this concept of, oh, we don't need a safe space. We need to be able to say whatever we want to and do whatever we want to or whatever. And it's just, it's it's odd to me that that the concept of a, a safe haven, as this blog post put put it back in 2003 is apparently a reprehensible concept to many people now and yet in 2003 they were speaking of it as well that's why geeks get together because they feel like in in the company of other geeks they are in a safe haven or otherwise stated as maybe a safe space so that that's interesting again and 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 again i'm not saying that any of this is either correct or incorrect i am simply saying that based on what i'm hearing sort of as critique of of communities now i feel like it's kind of odd that in 2003 that was sort of the default setting that was the expectation and the interpretation of what all these geeks were doing when they got together and crowded around the computer or played some game around a tabletop or whatever social fallacy 3 friendship before all um that one didn't connect with me so i'm not even going to i'm i'm not going to not going to talk about that. I, I've never experienced that particular uh, social fallacy. Uh, social fallacy four: friendship is transitive. Um, this is interesting. I, I it's a interesting social commentary. I don't think it's got anything to do with with geeks. Um, maybe I think it's maybe more about maybe introverts or something. And they're saying that um, that the friends should should sort of be able to um, get combined. Like, so if you have a friend from, I don't know, work or something, I don't really know where people have friends, but I'm assuming you might have some at work and then you might have some um, at your computer gaming club, maybe, and then you're saying, oh, let's put them all together in one place and have them party together. I don't know. I, I really don't know the situation where this is all happening. It's all very foreign to me. So I, again, I, I guess it kind of doesn't connect but at the same time it kind of does because i think what they're saying here is that geeks are often introverted and they and introverts don't understand how friends work um which i can't argue with so then geek fallacy five is friends do everything together and again this one didn't really connect with me because i've never thought of that at all never never felt that way they they say that geeks of 2003 i guess some thought that um you know if you're friends you, you have to go do everything together for all time um, and maybe if someone goes to do something without you then you feel hurt 
didn't connect with me at all. I'm completely, I've never experienced anything like that. I've never had a, a friend um, who experienced that as far as I know. So it doesn't really connect. But anyway, it's an interesting blog post. You should go look at it with a, a sort of a historical view. It's um, it, it's just, yeah, it's a, a thought-provoking piece. Not in a, well, maybe in a big way. I mean, it certainly made me think of some big ideas. So yeah, you should go read it. I'll put it in the show notes, probably, if I remember. Okay, and then finally, the final bit of feedback isn't feedback. It's just something that I wanted to note. And the thing that I want to note is on Slackware. And there's really no reason to note this whatsoever, except that it is a a little bit of a thing. It's a thing. So on January 13, there was a an addition to Slackware called NVI. And the release note reads as follows, or the entry in the change log reads as follows. This is an implementation of the classic EX slash VI text editor written by Keith Bostick. Due to this having UTF-8 support, which Elvis lacks, will have it take over the EX slash VI symlinks if they aren't already pointing to a different choice. Note that the removal of VI slash EX symlinks from the Elvis and Vim packages might cause your EX slash VI symlinks to point to this after all the EX slash VI packages have been upgraded. You can set them to your preference using package tool setup VI EX. This is a note about VI and X, neither of which I use. I don't use VI, I don't use EX. I don't have anything against either of them. I, I just happen to not use them. And I mean, to the to the degree that I don't even have them installed. So just to be clear at how, how, how I really don't use those things. It's just kind of significant though, because in Slackware, I think ever since the very beginning, there's been Elvis. Elvis has always been in Slackware. Elvis is a text editor. It's supposed, it was meant as a modern replacement for ex slash vi of unix fame i'm just reading it right out of the man page here um elvis supports many new features including multiple edit buffers multiple windows multiple user faces including an x11 interface and a variety of display modes this is kind of funny second paragraph in its man page to exit elvis you can give the command colon q in each of its windows i think that's funny just because you know that is kind of the classic joke right um I'm not that I think it's a funny joke. I just think it's it's interesting that they address that right in the second paragraph. But anyway, I'm getting um, sort of beside the point here. The point being, Elvis is historically significant to many people um, as a part of Slackware, and it was just kind of interesting to see Elvis either. I don't know if it's getting removed or just if it's you know if it's just NVI is replacing it as sort of the primary editor. I I, I have no allegiance to Elvis whatsoever, because as I say, I don't use Vi or Vim, but it's it's a little bit bittersweet, I guess, to see it evaporate from Slackware. Although, again, I, I don't know. I haven't actually seen Elvis get removed, necessarily. I mean, I haven't seen it get added either, but I haven't been looking for it. But I just know that it's it was Pat Volkerding's first editor, if if I remember his, his comments on the subject before. And, and to see it not get to be included in Slackware is is I, I guess it's symbolic of of progress. It's kind of the way things work, and I think it's an important 
symbol of progress too. There are times uh, at which sort of allegiance to a specific thing in computing becomes kind of silly, and you kind of have to give that up. And it's difficult to do that. It really is. I completely understand that. And it's even more difficult, I think, to differentiate between the things that someone just sort of came up with on a when they were bored one afternoon versus something that has been developed as a viable alternative because there have been real issues with the thing that already exi- exists and you know it just can't function the same way so it's um it's 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 tough to to come up with that sort of determination to to really be able to pin something down and think yeah okay this is an important change and i'm going to have to accept it versus well that's a dumb change and i'm not going to accept that i mean that goes for so much in in the unix world and as i've often said one of my favorite things about unix and linux POSIX in general, is the fact that it has that history to it, that unchanged history for, for 40 years or whatever it's been. It, it brings me... The, the, I don't know what brings me greater joy to know that this little pamphlet that I've referenced for the past three episodes on my desk from 1982 or whatever I said it was from, like this is still a valid pamphlet. It still has a bunch of commands in there that I can use right now, today, and all the options are still valid. I mean, it's crazy. That's that's unheard of. I love it when I go into a used bookstore, back when I knew where those existed, um, and I would ask for computer books, and they would say, oh, we just have a bunch of old ones. There's probably nothing in there that you can use. And I walk out with with a book about Unix that, that's completely still valid. I mean, that's really, really cool. So I'm... You know, I'm a big fan of that kind of that stability. I run Slackware. Obviously, I'm a fan of of stability, and it's it's just kind of hard to know when you know w- when when things have to change and when it stops being viable to keep it sort of historically pure to to what it ha- used to be. And it gets further complicated because sometimes that's a personal a matter of personal use cases, right? I mean, it's it's very much like the Markdown versus um i don't know doc book question i mean like what what what's your use case for this thing why is it not working for you if it's not working it may be because you're trying to write something that is heavily reliant upon formatting and you're realizing that markdown doesn't really allow for that and doesn't have a styling language natively uh, associated with it and so on or it might be because you can't imagine why anyone would ever need the ability to run uh, two separate sound applications at the same time. Like, why would anyone need to use a sound card at the same time? What's Pulse for again? Um, you know, like these are real things where where you might actually not like within your little bubble of a world, you just don't need those functions, and so it doesn't make any sense when people go in and think and and start telling you that they need the change. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a funny funny thing. All this stuff in 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 a stable OS world, and it's great. And I think in Linux that we have the choice to to reject some of the changes that we just happen to not like. It's great that we have another a, a completely other sort of sister operating system BSD to fall back on if 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 we cho- if we say oh well I just can't. 
I, I'm just not into the way that this project's going. I'll just go over here. I mean, that's a great thing. It's it's exciting, and it's it's because there's code out there that people own for themselves and can modify it and can share it. And if if nothing else about technology seems to be working in this world today of rampant capitalism, of nonstop rampant warfare, high-tech warfare, and, and everything else that's wrong with, with everything, at least we have open source, which ensures that everyone owns, everyone can own the code that they're running on their tech. So important, and it, we're just, we're really, I think, really lucky to be computing in a time when, when open source is, I guess, any way you look at it, healthier than ever. Let's just keep working to keep it that way, shall we? All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next week. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Og Cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.